We can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We find ourselves in John chapter 12 at the end of Jesus' public ministry. There's certainly more in the Gospel of John, but it's, the bulk of it is the Passion Week. He spends time with his disciples, equipping and preparing them, and then he goes to that death of the cross. So as we come to the end of his public ministry, we'll look specifically at verses 40, uh, 44 to 50, but I just want to read begin, beginning in John 12 at verse 27. John 12, beginning in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness." And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the gospel according to John. We thank you for the way that he sets forth the Lord Jesus Christ as that word became flesh who dwelt among us. We pray that you would guide us now in our thoughts and our minds as we consider again the Lord Jesus, his identity, his mission, his authority, all these themes that we have seen, reviewed or repeated in John's gospel. We know that John has an agenda to set forth the, the divine word who became flesh. And we rejoice in that because we know it was for us men and for our salvation. We know it was for our, our life eternal. 
because we are sinners and we have rejected you. We have rebelled against you. We have transgressed your most holy law. But you sent your son to live for us in perfect obedience to that law, to die as a sacrifice and to substitute on that cross and to be raised again the third day so that all who look to him in faith may not abide in darkness, but may know that light of the world. They may, may know that joy of being found in Jesus Christ. God bless the word today here and elsewhere. May it run swiftly and be glorified. May it go forth conquering and to conquer. And may men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people and nation come to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. May they by grace believe on him for forgiveness and for a righteousness that avails with you. Forgive us now from all of our sin and, 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 and rebellion and cleanse us in that precious blood. And we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, as we come here to the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry, as I said, the gospel doesn't end. We go from chapters 13 to chapter uh, 21. But the public ministry of our Lord is concluded here. As I said, he will spend time with his disciples in the upper room, and then the events of the Passion will take place. He will be arrested. He will be brought before the Sanhedrin. He will be brought before the uh, Pontius Pilate. He will be condemned to die. And as we consider the word of God, we know that he was not condemned to die because of his sin or because of his transgression or because of his criminal activity. He was condemned to die for us, for our sin, because we have rebelled against God. Well, as we come to verses uh, 44 to 50 in John's gospel, we see common themes. Jesus ends his public ministry the way the gospel of John starts. John 1, 1 to 18, we refer to that as the prologue. That's where John gives us theology. He shows us the relation between the Son and the Father. And he tells us unequivocally that the Son is God. He says in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that self-same Word of John 1, 1 is the Word of John 1, 14, who became flesh and dwelt among us. So the identity of Jesus is crucial in John's gospel. But as well, we understand or we need to understand his mission. What did he come to do? Well, the prologue tells us that he came in order to save his people from their sins. But also John wants to underscore his authority. So after we leave that prologue in John 1, 1 to 18, we then come to what theologians and commentators call the book of signs. So John chapter 1, verse 19, to here, John chapter 12, verse 50. And what do we see Jesus doing? He reasserts on several occasions his identity, his mission, and his authority. And that is precisely how he ends his public ministry. So that's what we will look at this morning. First, the identity of the Son in verses 44 and 45. Second, the mission of the Son in verses 46 to 48. And then thirdly, the authority of the Son in verses 49 and 50. But remember the context. John has told us that not everybody who heard Jesus believed. In fact, he tells us that specifically in verse 37. In John 12, we read, But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. This wasn't a surprise. This didn't catch God off guard. This wasn't something that Jesus would stew and brood about. He knew according to the prophet Isaiah, both in chapters 53 and chapter 6, that there would be this general unbelief that obtained. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. 
But then tracing down, specifically in verse 42, we read, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But this is not a saving faith. It's probably a temporary faith or perhaps a historical faith because what John continues to report. Notice in verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. That is not saving faith. Saving faith does not concern itself with what men think. In other words, if we side by grace with the Lord God Most High, we invoke that promise of the apostle, if God is for us, what can man do? I mean, there might be some remaining fear and some remaining trepidation in us, but for the large part, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we now have boldness. We wanna confess him, we wanna own him, we wanna go into the Baptist, uh, 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 the baptistry, we wanna identify with him publicly. So these men, at least on the surface, had some understanding that perhaps he might've been the fellow that the Old Testament prophesied, but they feared man. They loved the praise of man. They didn't wanna side with the Savior. So it's in that context that, again, he reiterates his identity. He reiterates his mission. He reiterates his authority. In other words, you say you believe. In other words, you say you have faith, but it's not biblical saving faith because you reject his identity, you reject his mission, and you reject his authority. So that's the particular context. So let's look at the identity of the son in verses 44 and 45. Notice what he says. Then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me. Again, brethren, this is not haphazard or accidental. We just read that many believed, but their faith isn't legit. So what does Jesus do in terms of concluding his public ministry? He speaks to what genuine saving faith looks like. And again, when we come to this, it's probably repetitious. You've been here for however long we've been in John's gospel. Uh, this is the 76th sermon on John's gospel. I have that in my notes. I didn't just sort of come up with that. But you've heard this, his identity, his mission, his authority. Why is that? Because John keeps telling us about his identity, his mission, and his authority. And if you think about it in terms of the construction of the book, the unbelieving Jews in the first century, they didn't have the prologue. They didn't have verses 1 to 18. The unbelieving Jews in the first century didn't have the Holy Spirit. The unbelieving Jews in the first century didn't have this vision of Christ that he commends here. And as a result, he continues to bang that hammer against that nail to instruct them that the only way you move from death unto life is by faith in the Son. In fact, look back for just a moment to John chapter 8, where we see this again, repetitive emphasis on this issue of his identity, his mission, and his authority. Notice in John 8 at verse 23, and he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. That's a statement concerning his identity. If you don't believe that I am. And the I am there speaks concerning Exodus 3.14, when God reveals himself and all of his glory to Moses when he comes to commission him. And so Jesus says, it's absolutely crucial that you understand this. You can miss some stuff in the Bible. 
You can know that, or, or, or not know certain contours of eschatology, for instance. You may be a bit perplexed or puzzled by some of the food laws, perhaps, in the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy, but you can't miss the identity of Christ. You cannot miss who Jesus is and pass from death to life. He is the object of our faith. He is the altogether lovely. He is the one that brings forgiveness of sin and the one that brings that righteousness that we need that avails with God. So notice on the heels of this declaration of his identity, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, who are you? That was always the issue. Again, they didn't have the prologue. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the eyes of faith to lay hold of Jesus as the Savior. And so they ask again, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. So from the beginning and at the end, he reiterates who he is, what he came to do, and the authority by which he does what he does. So back to John 12, 44, he says, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now, belief is emphasized all throughout John's gospel. We've seen it up to this point. We'll see it throughout the rest or remainder. And it all comes to fruition in John 20, verses 30 and 31. John the apostle says many other things Jesus did. He did many other signs, many other wonders, many other miracles, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in his name, you may have everlasting life. So there's no question as to why John wrote the gospel. John wrote the gospel so that you get saved. John wrote the gospel so that you'll learn who Jesus is. John wrote the gospel so that you'll believe on Jesus and come to him for everlasting life. There's no mystery. There's no esoteric thing going on. There's no mysticism. It's not about experience and feeling. It's about understanding God's provision in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and coming to him in faith and gaining everlasting life. And so what we have here is Jesus' repetition. It sounds almost contradictory, but it's not. He's stressing what we've seen up to this point. He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Again, it is not a contradiction. Faith is an overarching concern in this gospel, and specifically in light of verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. In light of verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. And then in verse 42, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. It's no accident that Christ is responding now to this particular situation of faith. In fact, some of you young people and children and probably older people, adults, you've wondered that as well. Well, what does it mean to believe? You guys talk about that a lot in your church. You emphasize it a lot in your church. Your particular tradition, the Reformed tradition, in terms of theology, emphasizes justification by faith alone. What does it mean to believe? Please listen to Jesus. Please listen to the word of God. Please listen to his instruction here. Faith is the empty hand that receives the blessings that God promises to sinners. And that object of faith is our Lord. So he's not saying that I want you to believe some sort of a contradiction. Rather, he is underscoring his identity with the Father. 
Remember that statement. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That teaches us three things about Jesus. His co-eternality with the Father, his, his distinctiveness or distinction from the Father, and then it teaches what we call in theology the consubstantiality of the Son with the Father. Now, please don't shut down. When we define these words, they make perfect sense. An older confession or creed says, of one substance. That's what consubstantiality means. Of one substance. Having the divine essence, just like the Father does, so does the Son. That's why when Jesus says, he who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me, He's not saying faith in him is bad. He's not saying faith in him makes, makes it such that you're not actually believing in God. He's saying, when you believe in me, you have the Father. When you believe in me, you have the blessings of the Father. In somewhat of a clunky way, Cyril of Alexandria explained it this way. When you believe in me, I, who am a human being, like you for your sake. It's important we don't miss that. Remember, for you and I, living in the 21st century, having Bibles on our phones, having some degree of theology because we live in a, in a, in a blessed era, in a blessed generation, we, we come to this, especially as the blood-bought children of God who have the Holy Spirit and understand something about the prologue and everything previously written. We, we see it. It's obvious, right? It's as clear as clear could be. But these are unbelieving Jews standing in the presence of a man who is claiming to be God most high. You, you can understand, not justify, but you can understand their incredulity. You can sort of understand why they've got a bit of an ax to grind, why they're a bit on edge, why they're a bit defensive. Why in previous chapters, and again, I'm not condoning it, I'm not justifying it, but you can kind of understand why in John 8 and why in John 10, when Jesus makes himself equal with God, these Jews pick up stones to throw at him. You can kind of understand as we'll move through the gospel narrative, when on that day they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Again, not condoning, not justifying, but entering in, as it were, to the life of an unbelieving Jew who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, who's standing before one, who's claiming to be Yahweh of Israel. It seems a bit strange. It seems a bit of a stretch. It seems a bit odd. They didn't understand in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And so Jesus is clarifying for them now. So back to Cyril, when you believe in me, I who am a human being like you for your sake, but also God on my own and because of the Father from whom I am, do not imagine that you are placing your faith in a human being. I am no less than God by nature, even if I look like you. And I have within myself the one who begat me. Since I am of the substance as my begetter, your faith will certainly transfer also to the Father himself. So back to the text, he says, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Notice that this isn't ultimately just informational, but it's condemnation as well. Because you see, these guys thought that God was their father. These guys, in fact, turn back for just a moment to John 8. John chapter 8, Jesus had a go around with these guys back then, and you'll notice something there. In John 8, at verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. 
Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would not, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So when we go back to John 12 at verse 44, Jesus is condemning their unbelief. Jesus is condemning their rejection. Jesus is condemning their resistance because he says, if you had believed in me, you would have the Father also. But what's the converse? If you reject Jesus, you don't have the Father. It's that simple, brothers and sisters. That's what he's emphasizing here at the conclusion of his public ministry. He wants to leave them with that resounding thought that he is, in fact, the embodiment of God Most High. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so when you reject him, you reject the Father. And then notice he ups the ante to assert that he is one substance with the Father. Notice in verse 55, and he who sees me sees him who sent me. Now, the vision is not physical because there are a lot of people in Jesus' 33 years on earth who laid eyes on him, but they didn't believe on him. They didn't receive him. They were not born again. They had not passed from death to life. The vision that he is espousing here is spiritual. In other words, when you look into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, you see God. He says this later in the upper room when, when Philip says, show us the Father. And what does Peter say, or, or Jesus say? Have I been so long with you? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So he is telling these Jews by way of comment, condemnation, a, reject, a rejection of the Son is necessarily a rejection of the Father. Listen to Gil here. He says, not with bodily eyes, for there were many that saw Christ who never saw the Father. They saw Christ as a mere man and were offended at the meanness of his outward appearance. They saw nothing divine in him nor the glory of the Father through him. But with the eyes of the understanding, whoever saw or perceived the glory of Christ in his miracles saw the glory of God in them also. For the Father that dwelt in him did the works, John 2, 11. And whoever truly sees Christ with an eye of faith sees his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, as the brightness of his Father's glory, as having the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in him, the same perfections as in the Father, so that he that hath seen the one hath seen the other also. That's his point. He's condemning them. And not in some shaking his finger in their face sort of way, but he's doing it in order to bring conviction. He wants them to move from this place of a temporary or a historical faith into a receiving all the benefits of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the end of his public ministry. What does he do in his public ministry? He ministers the word concerning himself. And he, according to his humanity, is like any other man who's ever preached the gospel, except maybe Jonah. They want to see people saved. They want to see people convicted for their sin. Thus, he gives them this sort of a rebuke. But he wants them to get that conviction such that they'll receive by grace through faith the benefits of Christ. 
So the conclusion of his public ministry underscores once again his identity. And Thomas says, and the reason why one sees the Son also sees the Father is that the Father is in the Son by a unity of essence. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That is an overarching, controlling statement for the rest of John's Gospel that we mustn't jettison. We must keep that in mind all the way through so that when we come to passages like that, we go, oh yeah, we've already learned this. We've already seen this. This is in fact his identity. And thus, he is the worthy object of our faith. Let's not uh, temporarily believe. Let's not just historically believe, but let's by God's grace lay hold of him. Let us know him. Let us pass from death to life. Let us enjoy that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, for those here that are not converted, those here that are not Christians, those here that are not believers, all of this may seem a bit confusing, but this much should be absolutely crystal clear. God is a holy God. He made man in his image to do what he called us to do. We didn't do what he called us to do. We fell in Adam, our federal head, our representative, if you will. And as a result, we are justly liable to God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. That's what the Bible calls bad news. It is bad news, right? Under the, the punishment or under the judgment and wrath of God Almighty. You know, it's only a fool that would say, well, you know, that's not so bad. Yes, it is. It's very bad. It is very bad. Whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life, John 3, 36, but the wrath of God abides on him presently. That's hard for us to appropriate that because we eat good food, we enjoy the weather, we enjoy the benefits that God gives us on this side of eternity. So it's hard to tell a sinner, you're, you're under the wrath of God. Well, no, I'm not. I had a good steak, I had steak and eggs this morning. I got a good wife, I've got, I've got nice kids, I've got, I've got a good job, all these things. It's hard to sort of convince somebody no, you're under God's wrath. So, so that's the bad news. But the good news is, is that the Father sends the Son. The Father sends the Son into this world to do a particular task. Not simply to set forth an example. Oh, we, we should just follow Jesus right on into heaven. We don't have the ability to follow Jesus right into heaven. We need rescue from Jesus. We need redemption from Jesus. We need salvation from Jesus. And the good news is, is that's precisely what Jesus came to do, to save his people from their sins. So it's crucial that you understand that he is in fact the son of God and that those who by grace believe on him have the son and the father. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're bought and paid for property of God most high. Now that brings us to his mission. I'm getting ahead of myself, but notice the mission of the son in verses 46 to 48. What he is, or rather who he is, and, and what he does. And verses 46 to 48, he underscores that. Notice, I have come as a light into the world. We see that in John's gospel. John 8, specifically at, at uh, verse 12. John 9 at verse 5, when Jesus announces, I am the light of the world. We see that in the prologue as well. He manifests the light. He is the light that gives light and life to men. So this is actually his task. This is why it's so offensive when men forget the redemptive component of Christianity and just treat it as a series of ethics or, or morality, right? You've heard that. Well, just try harder and be like Jesus. 
Really? Try harder and be like Jesus? The natural mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. The, the, the carnal mind hates Jesus. The carnal mind hates God. The, the, the carnal mind despises him. So this admonition to, to just try harder and, and modify your behavior and, and work on your morals and, and just get better. Be a better you. You see that sometimes in social media. It's kind of the, the ultimate, you know, diss at somebody. You need to be better. Well, that's okay in social media, but from a Christian pulpit, that is criminal. There's no emphasis on be better. The emphasis is on believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's what his emphasis is when he concerns or rather considers his mission. Verse 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. You see, he corroborates everything I've just said. Well, I'm corroborating everything he just said. What he does as the son, the word became flesh, is to free us. It is to liberate us. It is to redeem us. It is to buy us out of the, 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 the market of sin. And again, it's not liberation theology. You've got a bad economic status politically or the downtrodden. That's not the point. The point is spiritual. He will save his people from their sins. He comes as a light shining in the darkness. And he speaks specifically concerning this, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. That's a tough place to live, isn't it? Darkness. For those of us who are saved, ask us after the service. What was it like when you were in darkness? You know what you won't get from a believer? Oh man, it was great. I loved it. I sure wish I could go back. That's not what you get from a believer. The believer says it was darkness. It was horrible. It was miserable. It was depraved. I loved my lusts. I served my flesh. I celebrated my, my wickedness. I, I ran, as it were, from, from the God who's altogether lovely and chief among 10,000. It, it's, it's madness. Remember that demoniac who dwelt among the tombs? No man would go near him. No man would venture into that area. Why? Because he was a mess. And he was a violent, raging mess. He couldn't be bound. He would be out there naked. He would be out there crying and, and howling and, and weeping and wailing. He would be cutting himself with stones and, and bleeding all over his body. So guess what? There was one that went into that region. There was one who ventured into that area. And it's the champion of our salvation. And the text is very beautifully conspicuous. After Christ saves the man, it says that the man was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed, and in his right mind. So prior to that encounter with Jesus, he was naked and out of his mind. So if you ask a believer here this morning, what was it like living in darkness? They don't say, oh, I, you know, I wish I had just a bit more of that. I wish I, no, that's not it at all. I was, I, 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 I was in the, the, the far country. I was, I was a, a, a child of wrath. I, I deserve God's wrath and curse both in this life and, and that which is to come. So now that you've come to Jesus and you're clothed and in your right mind, is, does everything always work out for you? Well, no, I, I've got challenges in my life. My bank account didn't increase. My, my wardrobe didn't get better. My hair didn't grow back. I, I didn't gain another six inches in my stature. 
you, 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 the, 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 the short guys around here feel it keenly when we're looking up to these giants. I baptized two young giants last week. I, I look like a midget in the picture I take with them afterwards. So, so the physical benefit isn't more money in your account, more hair on your head, a few more inches, a, a, a few less. That's not it. The darkness is sin. The darkness is depravity. The darkness is wickedness. The darkness is rebellion. The darkness is wretched. And so what does Christ come to do? As the son of the father, he comes to free us. He comes to liberate us. He comes to redeem us. He comes to save us. That's the emphasis on the mission. So in the face of unbelief, what does Jesus do? Well, I'm going to just talk about morals now. I'm going to just rehearse politics with these fellows. No, he presses the point. I am the son. I am the son of the father. You, re you believe in me, you have the father. You reject me, you reject the father. And the, 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 the purpose for which I've come is for this very task. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. But then notice it doesn't stop there. He does speak of judgment in verses 47 to 48. In other words, this is a passage of condemnation. It'd be great if we lived in a world with, you know, unicorns flying around and pixie dust and fairies and, you know, just happiness and joy. Well, there are consequences for sin. I realize that's hard on us because we don't see it in this present evil age. We see criminals get away with all kinds of criminality. We see abortionists not punished, but celebrated. We see euthanasia increasing and expanding to, to, to encompass more you know, hapless souls out there. We see all manner of evil and very little consequences. I still just want one person to suffer some degree of consequence for the decisions made in COVID management. Just, just one, but we don't see it. So we start to kind of conclude, well, maybe the world just works that way. No, it doesn't. It does not work that way. I mean, it does in rebellion against God, but God does not work that way. God will judge the unbeliever. The unbeliever who dwells and abides in darkness, who hears the, 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 the ministry of the gospel, who hears about the Lord Jesus Christ and doesn't believe and continues to resist and who continues to abide in darkness, there is judgment coming. Let's look at Jesus' words there, specifically in verses 47 and 48. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, note the standard of judgment, it's the word of Christ. There's no bell curve. There's no, well, I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I'm not as bad as, you know, your neighbor. I'm not as bad as you. So, so therefore, no, it's the standard of Jesus' words. Jesus says in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father. So the word of Christ is the standard here. It's not just the, you know, the prevailing opinions of men, but then notice when he says, I do not judge him. Brethren, you need to understand that that is connected to his first coming. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In fact, turn back for just a moment to John 3. John chapter 3 in Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus. We see him teach a very similar me uh, message to that man. Notice what he says in John 3, verse 16. 
the most popular verse probably in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now note verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why did Jesus come in that first coming? To take on our humanity, to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised again for us. So in the first coming of Jesus, and this is why he says there in John 12, I, I do not judge him. But there's something else that we need to continue on here in John 3, because we're reading John 12 in light of John 3 here. Notice in verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe, notice, is condemned already. It is first coming. Jesus didn't need to judge the world because the world was already under judgment. The world was already a mess. The world was already a cesspool. The world was already a sewage pit. In fact, read on. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who, uh, practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. The world was condemned already. That's what he means when he says in John 12, specifically at verse 44, I do not judge him. And then he ends verse 44 by saying, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So in other words, his first coming, when he assumes our humanity, when he lives for us, when he dies for us, when he's raised again for us, it's to save us. We're already judged or else he wouldn't have had to come to live for us, to die for us and to be raised again for us. But something to notice before we go on is that the first coming wasn't associated with his judgment and condemnation. The second coming most certainly will be. Do not make the mistake of thinking, well, you know, Jesus, gentle, meek, and mild. In Revelation chapter 6, we have an expression of judgment in history, an expression of judgment on the part of the Son of Man through historical means, I would say the Roman armies. And when the targets of that judgment are seeing the chaos all around them, they understand that this is in fact a judgment from on high. And it's intriguing because they call upon the mountains to fall on them. They call upon the rocks to cover them. They say, hide us from what? They say, hide us from the wrath of the lamb. The gentle Jesus, meek and mild is a biblical truth but it's not canceled by the reality of the wrath of the lamb. So in the first coming, the primary emphasis was on salvation, redemption, uh, uh, life eternal. It wasn't on judgment because we're already judged. But don't make the mistake that in the second coming, there's not gonna be judgment. Of course there is. Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father with all of his holy angels, he makes this distinction. He puts the sheep on the right, he puts the goats on the left. The sheep go into everlasting life and the goats go into everlasting death. They go into everlasting punishment. They go into everlasting hell. And so because the first was not associated primarily with judgment, don't conclude that the second isn't. Oh yeah, the second most surely is. There is a judgment to come for those who abide in darkness. Remember, he's condemning their unbelief. He is trying to promote conviction in their wretched hearts so that they, by grace, will receive his benefits with the empty hand of faith. 
And then notice what he goes on to say in verse 48. He, he amplifies this. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. In other words, you're already judged. You're already condemned. You abide in darkness. In God's good providence, you've heard gospel preaching. In God's good providence, you've had parents. In God's good providence, you've had a wife or a husband. In God's good providence, you've come into a church that's not telling you to be a better you, but is calling upon you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've already got that word. And it's that word that's going to come back around to bite you. And Jesus mentions this, he affirms this, and he stipulates this. Notice in verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. He'd be speechless. See, we think that it's going to be like some courtroom. You know, everybody likes a good drama, whether in print or on the screen. We like a good courtroom drama. We like the, you know, the defense giving, whatever side we happen to fall out on. I happen to like the prosecution, but, you know, oh, that defense attorney gave a great, you know, great testimony. And then the prosecution comes there, comes in there and owns them. Well, what is it all contingent upon? Contingent upon, well, cross-examination, testimony, you know, were you there on the night of the crime? Well, no, I was with my wife. I have a perfectly good alibi. We, we think there's dialogue, right? We, we, we think that we're going to stand before the Most High and dialogue that we're not guilty? Try to pin it on somebody else? So, well, that wasn't me. I wasn't there every single time I sinned. It's not going to be like that. The word that Jesus has spoken judges you. It's that prosecuting attorney from whence you can't escape. So if you abide in darkness, you hear the, the, the ministry of the gospel, and you resist and reject that gospel, that's on you. That is yours to own. And it will come back to you on the day of judgment. Remember that time? Remember that time? I doubt God's going to do that. But just say, for an instance, he did. Remember that time and that time and that time and that time. There's that incident in Luke 16. I don't think it teaches what people say it teaches. But there is something there that is intriguing about the rich man and, and Lazarus. And the rich man goes off into hell and he basically wants to, you know, barter and, you know, make his case to try to send somebody so that his brothers can be warned. It's intriguing because Jesus says that, that Abraham says, God, uh, uh, son, remember, son, remember, whatever that little bit of scripture means, I think there's continuity between this life and the age to come. And the continuity, again, is not that I'm going to grow six more inches and be, you know, six, four and strappingly beautiful. I, I don't think that's the continuity. The self-same body with which Jesus went into the grave is the self-same body that came out again. The self-same bodies that go into the grave are the self-same bodies that are going to come out. Now, glorified and prepared and fit for worship of God Most High. But I think the memory, the memory, son, remember, remember. I don't think hell would be as hellish if there was no memory. I don't think hell would be as hellish if we didn't remember the various times we sat in churches like this and heard the gospel and resisted it and rejected it. I think if we were in hell and we had no consciousness of that, that would be, at least in my thinking here, would be better than, you mean I could have and should have believed? You ever think about that? The worst words in the English language are could have and should have. Well, they're especially worst 
when you come to the matter of salvation. I would have, or I could have, and I should have. My encouragement to you this morning is to believe on him. He came for this purpose. He is the Son of God, sent from the Father on this particular mission in order to save his people from their sins, those who abided in darkness. They have the hope of everlasting life. Now notice that Jesus ends on the high note of his authority. The high note of his authority, specifically in verses 49 and 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave a command, what I should say and what I should speak. It's bad reading comprehension and even worse exegesis to find in this passage some sort of a separateness from the Father and the Son. The Lord can say this because he's one in substance with the Father. The Lord can say this because he's consubstantial with the Father. He's not suggesting he has no authority. He is declaring that he has absolute authority. So when it comes to the teaching of who he is and what he does, his authority is absolute. That's the emphasis in 49 and 50. I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say uh, what I should say and what I should speak. Remember introducing one of the sermons in John's gospel saying, at times it looks like it's proceeding according to a script. It is the script given by the Father, penned for us in the Old Testament by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing shocking. There's nothing surprising. I mean, some of the contours and the theological dimension is awe-inspiring, but we had it announced in the Old Testament that the, the, the Son of God would come as the champion of God to redeem the people of God. That's the constant refrain in John's gospel. So when the Son takes on our humanity, when he comes and speaks to us and uh, uh, to men and, uh, uh, for their salvation, he speaks with the very authority of God Most High. Remember that bit in John 1.18? No one has seen, seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Well, guess what the vehicle of declaration is in John's Gospel? It is the assumption of our humanity, and it is his public ministry, and his oft-repeated emphasis on his identity and on his mission. The word that he speaks is authoritative. The word that he says is absolutely true. The word that he says will not return unto him void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it. So notice verse 50, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the father has told me, so I speak. The Lord's public ministry ends where the prologue begins and where we see his ministry conducted. It begins and ends with his identity, his mission, and his authority. And that brings us, in conclusion, to make three quick observations and then we go. First, the challenge of unbelief. The challenge of unbelief. I'll hit the Christians, the believers first. We're not supposed to be like these men described in verse 42. Oh, I, I believed in Jesus, but you know, for the life of me, I'm never going to confess it. For, for the life of me, I will never testify. I, I will never share that because, you know, I want to be one of those secret disciples. 
Are there, you know, less, uh, more obscure disciples in the Bible? Yeah, I mentioned the case of Obadiah in 1 Kings chapter 18. He's not the Elijah that stands out on Mount Carmel and challenges the prophets of Baal and Asherah to a contest. Obadiah is behind the scenes, saving the true prophets of God from the murderous massacre of Jezebel, woman of the year, by the way. So there is those unsung heroes in the history of the church that aren't the Elijah types. They don't, you know, walk around with hair shirts and eating locusts and honey and, you know, that sort of thing and standing in the midst of false prophets and wagging their fingers at them. Not every preacher is a John the Baptist. We, we, we heard it this morning. But what does John do in the face of Herod? Well, I don't want to, I don't want to encroach upon you. It's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's unlawful for all the things that you do. John didn't shrink back. I'm not saying everybody's a John the Baptist. I'm not saying everybody's an Elijah the prophet. I'm saying everybody's a C.H. Spurgeon. But everybody blood-bought, spirit-filled is going to confess faith in Jesus Christ. They're going to do it publicly in the waters of baptism, and they're going to do it at Tim Hortons. Remembering, I'm not, again, stand up on the table in Tim Hortons. Brethren, i got a three-point sermon for you all. No. Why are we afraid to bow our heads and thank God for food? Why is that trepidation there? What, why? The, the God-haters, the heathen, are going to be upset with us? They, they don't like that? They, they don't want us to do that? After all, it's a pluralistic society. This is Brethren, we are gods. Believers, we need buckets of courage. Increased faith and the wisdom to know when to stand up and when to speak up and when to shut up. That is our duty in this present evil age. For unbelievers, may I just try and encourage you that this idea that, yeah, Jesus is a pretty special fellow. Jesus was a, a wonderful man. It's true, but it's only a little bit true. I mean, it's true, but there's so much more true. He's the son of God, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven to be made like us in all points and yet without sin, so that he could do what we could never do, obedience and death and resurrection, such that we can have everlasting life. Don't fear the face of men. Don't fear what relationships in your life may become. Don't fear what others might think because you're now one of those nuts who side with Jesus and you go to that Bible-thumping church. Brethren, Jesus is altogether lovely. He's chief among 10,000. Notice the emphasis in his ministry. Notice what he says in verse 46. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. See, it's not like I have a great life, but I could have a better life. That's sometimes how the gospel is, is preached. Or taught, well, you know, come to Jesus and you'll get more. You will get the hair. You will get the three, more, three or four more inches. You'll get, you'll get the big bank account. No, the difference is abiding in darkness, rebellion and transgression and iniquity and sin against God Most High, or having everlasting life, passing into the very presence of God Most High when we breathe our last. Ask those same Christians, what do you think about death? They might say something like this. I'm not sure that I want to be there when it happens, but I'm okay with it happening. Right? It's like somebody falling off a building. It's not the fall so much. It's that sudden impact at the end. That's the bit of the bummer. The believer doesn't fear death. I mean, there is probably within us the same way when we go to Tim Hortons. We don't want to bow our heads. There's, there's always that. 
Don't that remaining corruption that we need to kill and destroy and mortify and put out of us. But the believer looks at death, not with some sick, morbid fascination. Oh, I have to qualify everything, because there's people out there that look at death with sick, sick fast, you know, morbid fascination. The believer looks at death as passing from this life into the presence of God Almighty. Every birthday, you're a step closer. Every new day, you're a step closer. Every moment, you're a step closer. We're going to be where he is. We're going to see the Lamb. We're going to adore the Lamb. We're going to give praise to the Lamb. We're going to be in his land where there's no more sorrow. There's no more pain. There's no more hunger. There's no more thirst. There's no more death. Christ has defanged the very tomb. Christ has taken away the victory from death. Christ has conveyed light and life upon those who formerly abided in darkness. So when it comes to this issue of faith, come to the Lord Jesus. Believe all that the Bible says concerning him and you will have everlasting life. Secondly, if we haven't made this point, we need to bask in the glory of the Son. We're going to come back to John's gospel in the new year. We'll come back to the upper room, John chapter 13, verse 1 and following after the new year. But for now, just by way of summary, the prologue declares his glory. The life and ministry, the signs, the wonders, the doctrine, all of that declares his glory. The book of the Passion, chapter 13, verse 1 to chapter 20, verse 31, declares how. It demonstrates what John the Baptist says in John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Up to this point, we know who he is. Up to this point, we know his mission. Up to this point, we know his authority. But there's that one nagging question. How does he do it? How does he affect it? How does he execute the plan? How does he bring us from a state of darkness into marvelous light? He does it because he is arrested. He does it because he is crucified. He does it because he is dead. He does it because he is buried. And he does it because he is raised again from the dead. The Apostle Paul summarizes it beautifully in Romans 4.25. He was delivered up because of our offenses and he was raised for our justification. That's what the book of the Passion will explain in great and vivid and glorious detail to us. And finally, where we began is where we end. Come to him. Believe on him. Abiding in darkness is no good. Abiding in darkness is not the, the liberation and the joy and the expression of life that the liars have sold you on. The way of blessing, the way of joy, the way of peace is through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the gospel resounds with these three themes concerning the identity of the Savior, the mission of the Savior, and the authority of the Savior. And we pray that this message would go forth today. We pray that many who are in darkness, abiding in darkness, even loving their own sin and wretchedness and evil, would see the glory of Jesus Christ and would reach out, even if it's a weak faith, even if it's a simple faith. May they lay hold of that Redeemer and may they know the joy of being found in him. 
God, do this for your glory. Do this for your honor. Do this to populate the, the, the new Jerusalem, that blessed Emmanuel's land. We know there will be a great multitude assembled there, and we will always live to bring praise and glory to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you again for this time together, and we pray now through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, you can turn in your hymn books and we'll close our service by singing number 564. 564, a bit from Psalm 72. We'll stand as we sing together. of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Father, thank you for the word who became flesh for us. We thank you for so great a salvation. We pray, Father, that you would go with us now, that we would know your nearness as our good and be glorified, we pray, through Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. Amen. Well, please be seated for a brief time of meditation. <clears throat> 